Welcome back to Rubrics, a podcast from St. Timothy's Episcopal Church. We have a slightly different episode today. Um, might be a different format-wise than what we've been doing in the past. Um, but we've gotten some questions and some feedback, and we wanted to use this week to address one of those questions. So I'm going to let Father Steve kind of read that question and, and open with what we'll, be, what we'll be talking about, and then I will open in prayer and we'll hit the ground running. Sure. So today's question comes from Jason Harris, who emailed us back on January 19th. And um, that's when we asked for suggestions mm-hmm. for topics. He listened, took us at our word, and he has two. We'll handle one today. Knowing that we both are um, not cradle Episcopalians, we were not born and baptized into the Episcopal Church, he says, I'd love to hear about how and why you and Father Luke came to the Episcopal Church and what it was like for y'all to be new Episcopalians, positive and negative aspects. Good question. It is a good question. And we, we both have had quite a slightly different um, path to the Episcopal Church with, with some windy roads along the way. So I think it'll be an interesting discussion and conversation, and, and hopefully whether you've been baptized, as they say, cradle to grave uh, Episcopal, or if you are a convert like us, um, you will find some of our stories either similar or something in it that might um, give you some encouragement like we, like we have found along the way. Before we jump in, just open us in prayer with the sixth Sunday after the Epiphany. And if you uh, follow the Jessimus like we do here at St. Timothy's, you know that Lent is coming before you know it. And so... Uh, next Sunday, this coming Sunday, is the final Jessima, uh, Quinquagesima, and Ash Wednesday is a week from today. So it will be here before we know it, and I feel like we just celebrated the Nativity, and all mm-hmm. of a sudden we're preparing for Ash Wednesday, which is kind of how it goes sometimes. From the, from the cradle comes the cross. Yes. Let us pray. O God, the strength of all those who put their trust in Thee, Mercifully accept our prayers, and because through the weakness of our mortal nature we can do no good thing without Thee, grant us the help of Thy grace, that in keeping Thy commandments we may please Thee both in will and deed, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with Thee in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I think the best way to go about this is for maybe both of us just to talk briefly about our, our context growing up. Um, yours, Methodist, mine, Southern Baptist, um, and then we can kind of take turns talking about how we got to where we are today. But if you want to start, just talk about your Methodist context growing up, um, if you grew up in a in a religious household and what that looked like. Yeah, I grew up in South Carolina, and um, trying to make this brief. I, I, my parents were raised Methodist growing up and both in very, very small towns. Mm-hmm. And we went to, um, the, the, I, I think it was the largest Methodist church in the town. And that's all I knew. And we were, my, my household was not, and I, I say this with no judgment, just as description was, a very moral household mm-hmm. would not necessarily describe it one that was overtly religious. Mm-hmm. I don't think that makes it terribly different from a lot of Southern American households. I think you're going to mention um, E.L. Maskell yeah. a little bit in his autobiography, Saraband. He talks about how his, I read this years ago and it, ra- it rang true for me. He talked about how, gosh, what did he say? He said something, he, he loved, his parents loved the Church of England as an institution, mm. as to sort of what it stood for, yeah. what it upheld, but in terms of being active participants in it, um, you know, they could take it or leave it. Right. We went to church probably, uh, I mean, once or twice a month. Easter. Oh, okay, a month. No, no, once or twice a month, and, and but we did what a lot of... Southern Protestants do, I think. We we went to Sunday school more than we went to yep. preaching or big yep. church, as we would call it. And I, um, part of that's my fault and my brother's fault because we would we would try to convince my mother that we've done our bit for God today, yeah. and now let's move on and, and mm-hmm. go on. And 
I think she um, probably was tired of fighting <laughs> that battle. And, and, you know, I think when, when the whole of your worship experience sort of uh, hangs on the quality of the sermon, yeah. or that's the expectation as to what it should hang on, if it's not quality however you define that, wasting your time. then you're wasting your time. So that was easy to do. But at any rate, we, we, I, I, had, I have nothing but the happiest memories, truly, of, of, of my church, Main Street United Methodist Church in Greenwood, South Carolina. Um, truly very happy memories. I, um, I was blessed with an excellent youth director whom I talk to every single day now, even though it's been oh, um, 30 plus mm-hmm. years since um, we first met, yeah. he was the one that provided a different, um, he invited me to look at all of this differently mm-hmm. through his own life because he was a young man, he was popular, he was athletic. I mean, all the, he, was, he ran against all the church stereotypes mm-hmm. that I as a 12-year-old boy have. Um, again, long story short, he he asked questions about my call and, mm-hmm. and, and planted the seed. He would say things like, maybe you might want to consider or think mm-hmm. about this. Um, again, my spiritual, scriptural formation was pretty light, mm-hmm. but I knew I was drawn um, to this. Um, how far do we want to go? Do you want do you want to stop there, or do you want me yeah, to go? Yeah, let's, let's stop there, yeah, and then yeah, we can. Yeah, yeah. Then I can give my background, and yeah, then we can that. talk about what was the turning point for yeah. us. So, um, I grew up in a Protestant, you know, southern southern household as well. Um, Texas, you know, some would argue it's not quite the South that South Carolina is, and in they're right, but um, slightly different context. Mega Baptist church, um, stadium lights, the whole shebang. If you've been paying attention to any type of news recently. Um, you've probably seen my home church. You know, there was a video of a, a drummer guy suspended from the ceiling for one of their Christmas festivals. Drummer guys. Drummer guys, yes. Yeah. I, they had several. Um, they would also hang angels from these, and that was just their Christmas production. Um, I was in the, the choir, even though I could not sing, but everyone did it. And um, the guy who used to choreograph the Dallas Cowboys halftime shows would, would choreograph our, our choir, you know, productions. And, and so it was it was a whole production, no matter where you went. Um, youth group was, you know, a 40-minute sermon and then table groups, and then we, we would go to big church afterwards. Um, did y'all call it that? Yeah, okay. we did. Yeah. We did. We, we would say, are you going to big church mm-hmm. today? Yeah. Um, and, we, you know, we would all sit together and stuff like that. But I mean, I grew up with um, Awanas. Some people may, may know that reference of memorizing scripture, but I think the thing that always stood out to me and, and largely attribute this to my parents is it was all sincere. It was a genuine, sincere love of the scriptures. Um, and, you know, I think the, the common trope people will say with these mega churches is, you know, they're doing it for show. You know, there's nothing really internal. Um, could not be further from the truth, you know, in my context. Um, and anybody who's gone to one of these mega churches knows that you know, the pastor is a figurehead. You know, your your formation never happens with the pastor. It is, you know, the 15 other people as you get, you know, to the youth group, and then there's another step down from the youth group to high school. Then you have your own little table group. Then you've got your own little friend group. I mean, you can, you know, kind of carry that down, and it was all sincere for me. And so, and I think we'll both share this idea that there's obviously reasons we left, um, and there's things that we would change. You know, we're not sitting here saying, 100%, you know, it's the same as what it is, you know, what, what what we have now. I think we recognize that difference, but there's probably things that we both pick up on that was vital and that we still hold on to to this day. And for me, that was um, reverence and love for the scriptures. You know, I grew up as early as I can remember memorizing large chunks of scripture, um, you know, chapters at a time, and then, you know, reciting them for my little Hawana's badge or whatever. Um, and you know, I was in church three, four times a week. Um, Sundays, you know, Wednesdays, I was a student leader is what they called, um, which in hindsight was probably a terrible idea. But I was, you know, a sophomore in high school leading juniors in Bible studies and, you know, barely knew what I was thought about the Bible, much less I did not have a coherent, you know, theological understanding of the scriptures. But, you know, just kind of showing that I was, I was always heavily involved and, um, always had that sense of a calling toward, you know, some type of missions or leadership. You know, I, I think it was my sophomore year. Um, they 
kind of did a series on, you know, world missions and, and that whole thing. And um, also talked about how the local church has a role in that. And get, they gave a call toward, you know, responding toward a, a life committed to serving Jesus Christ, specifically in church or missions worldwide. And I remember, you know, responding to that call and going to some classes. And obviously that, you know, followed me to this day in a different context. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, that was my context. So Me- Mega Southern Baptist Church, um, but I had my kind of small groups that they kept me going. And, you know, I was three, four times a week from as early as I can remember till I graduated high school. So it's safe to say neither one of us had a bad breakup. Or maybe not. M- maybe. Okay. Uh, it depends if you ask me or some of the people I was around. Asking, I would say no. Yes, asking you is that is that we look back on our our congregations of origin Correct. with affection yes, yes. and admiration and great appreciation. Yeah. And that maybe as we sort of get to the end of this, it was more of a, there's no overt trauma that we were leaving, more of a, matur- a maturation process, Correct. sort of growing yeah. up a bit into that. Yeah, luckily I was not someone who had to leave my church because of trauma. Or, or conflict like or Correct. anything. And, and your parents still are Baptist. They are, they are. They've actually left that church, um, but... Um, yeah, they're they're still faithful Baptists, love the scriptures, um, and you know we, we we share that that deep affection for the Word of God. And my father is still technically United Methodist, although he attends a Baptist church because his mm-hmm. my, my mother died and he remarried, and and she's an active member of the Baptist church. So um, I think he goes there, but mm-hmm. still a member of the Methodist church. So that's also interesting, is that we have had this great period of discernment. Yeah, we now have our careers in a different. Right tradition than the one our parents raised us. Our parents, nor uh, I'm assuming no one else in in your family followed you to the Episcopal Church. To the Episcopal Church, and certainly Correct. no one in my family yeah. um, followed me as well. Yeah, none of them are Southern Baptist uh, of my siblings, but but um, yeah, they did they did not make the jump to the Episcopal Church. You know, church plants and and you know non-denom and. Presbyterian church plan, stuff like that, but yeah. So, obviously there's a call, a divine call. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone has a call. The call from God to a vocation is not only to ordained right. life. Right. We need to always emphasize that. We all have a call from God. Mm-hmm. Ours specifically was to, to the priesthood. Right. We couldn't have imagined that. 10, 15 years ago, yeah. or in my case, 20, 25 years ago. Um, but would you say that you were an anomaly? You were some, you know, religious freak growing up? Or were you a normal person, as most people might define it? I know that's a, you know, very, that's I, a loaded I was, term, I think, right? I think I had a unique friend group looking back. Um, the people would probably say, you know, those are the church kids. Um, we were in church all the time. We were leaders in our youth group, stuff like that. But um, it's not like we were the only ones who, who cared. I mean, we were we were very standard. You know, I had a very standard high school experience. You know, I was in the youth group, played sports, you know, kind of did all that, did my extracurriculars. Um, but it was, you know, there were, I was not the only one, you know, responding to that call to missions. I was not the the only one, you know, taking this stuff seriously. There is one thing unique about you that you told me, I still laugh at this when I think about it, is that you were not personally tapping into the sermons that, that were being delivered yeah. at your church, yeah. and so yeah, you and would put I'm headphones gonna in, in. I'm going to get into All right, that. good, yeah. good, because that, that to me is a, is a great story. That one probably does make me unique. But, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I was, I think I was a normal teenager. Again, mm-hmm. um, moral, um, following sort of truth, justice in the American way, kind right. of, yeah. you know, um, patriotic, southern, good manners kind of thing. Don't drink, smoke, or chew, or tolerate those who do. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, and believed in God, but not really formed mm-hmm. deeply into into that. Um, I was a leader in the FCA, Fellowship Christian of Ath- you know, Fellowship mm-hmm. of Christian Athletes in high school. You know, did things like that, parachurch activities, but really, um, I hope I didn't do any damage. I really had no clue what I was talking yeah, about. I mean, thinking back as a sophomore, yeah, teaching no, Bible I had studies, no, hadn't yeah. really had no clue what I was talking about. Um, but yeah, um, no, I had no real uh, that I can think, no real journey to Damascus moment. Mm-hmm. Same. I remember maybe one or two moments where I felt 
God's. I mean, I have two moments where I felt God's presence that I identify, um, and they were happened at two different points. One was when I was probably eleven or maybe eleven, mm-hmm. and I was an acolyte. This Methodist church was a very formal church. Okay. Um, it's all relative. In, yeah. in, in the Methodist world there, it was a very formal, beautiful, neo-Gothic church. Um, we always had two acolytes mm-hmm. on Sunday, and our, our one job, simply, literally, was to, we each had to light one candle at the beginning, and we had to extinguish the one candle yeah. at the end. But we wore cassock and kata. There you go. And then we sat by ourselves, though. This is this is the thing that's interesting to me, think, looking back. When you were an acolyte, you had to sit by yourself in, in the pew because the pew was near where you would have to walk up. Right. And so I remember feeling a bit uh, grown up. Now I'm sitting yeah. in service by myself. I need to pay attention to the sermon mm-hmm. uh, and don't to be the a service. Don't, don't be a distraction. But also I need to know when it's time to go yeah. light the candle and, and, to, and to extinguish the candle. But I remember sitting as an acolyte one Maundy Thursday, and I remember... Um, I remember the pastor doing um, a bit of a, a um, it was not a drama, it was a it was a liturgical act that was something I think he created. The point was, it was quiet, it was dark in the church, and for the first time, I think I understood mystery, hmm. and um, and I realized that we are here because something happened that is still happening. Mm-hmm that I am invited to enter into, and so it can happen to me. And that was um, that was a feeling, an intuition, that there's something here, yeah. and, and that never left me. The other, the other um, I think, the other moment for me was when I was in college, I think, freshman year of college. My mother was diagnosed with breast cancer, and that was really the first time I felt... Um, anxiety about possible loss yeah and i remember driving to to uh, even though i was in college i drove back home which wasn't far away and went into the parking lot this was after hours it was dark that's as close as i could get to the Mm -hmm. church inside and just remember sitting on the hood of my car um honestly and earnestly praying and asking for for peace and consolation and all that um those were those were Nothing dramatic, nothing, no lightning bolts coming mm-hmm. from the sky or anything, but very real experiences to me that connected me to the presence of God. Yeah. I think when I think of some of the moments that, um, you know, to put it bluntly, pushed me out of my current context, and it took me a while to find somewhere else to land. Um, and th- this probably is where I was, I was slightly uh, an annoying and unique teenager, but... Um, you know, I, I started, it, and I had a deep um, desire for just study of the Bible. You know, I, I was asking for study Bibles for, for Christmas um, alongside a, you know, sports sweatshirt. But um, didn't didn't necessarily have a context to understand some of that. But I started thinking, I go to church and I sit through a 40-minute sermon, and I don't feel like I'm learning enough in this sermon. So I would download podcasts of of you know, preachers that I enjoyed, and I would secretly put in a headphone or just read the transcript and take notes on it, and it was, you know, like I was paying attention, and I, and I remember people kind of asking me, you know, why don't, why don't you just listen to the sermon that you're going to, and I said, well, I know I'm supposed to go to church, but, um, you know, my parents have told me why that's important to show up and in worship and, and be in a body, but the goal is to learn as much as possible, right? So I, this one's better, I'm learning more than than I would, and I, I mean, I genuinely was poking a little bit, but I was I was struggling to kind of contextualize why am I why am I showing up every Sunday, and you know I'd kind of been taught well it's to it's to learn about the scriptures to hear someone teaching about the scripture, and so the better the teacher, the more spiritual formation would occur, and the better ex- church experience, and so you know that was that was I did that for a little bit, um, especially my junior and senior year. There was there was one week where uh, a friend and I, you know, were were arguing about some theological point um, that we had no business probably arguing about. But we went to our youth group, you know, worshipped and stuff like that. And then we, you know, the church had a cafe, you know, like every big Baptist church has a little coffee shop. And we bought coffee and skipped big church and and debated theology and we're talking about the scriptures. And my my parents asked me why didn't you go to church? And I said, well, we 
basically we're doing the same thing, just probably a more engaging format. You know, we were arguing about the scriptures, we were expounding the scriptures, we were teaching each other about them. I said, that's basically what we do upstairs. It was just more enjoyable here. Um, and that was kind of the first, you know, little steps of me saying, I think I'm trying to grasp onto something else. Why do we go to church? What's the purpose of it? Um, but I didn't really have the context to be able to do that. Um, and that was, you know, my junior and senior year. I stuck it out. I graduated um, high school in that in that Southern Baptist church and, and went to college and thought this is my chance to kind of start dipping my toe and figuring something else out. I had a, a best friend's older brother who joined the Roman Catholic Church. Then I had a good friend who joined the Episcopal Church. So I kind of had some conversations that I was able to have of what else is kind of out there. I mean, I had grown up in this one Southern Baptist Church my entire life, um, but didn't have a car in college. I ended up at a non-denominational church because I had friends who went there, mm-hmm. and uh, I made it about half a year before I kind of realized, you know, I'm in college, I'm missing something, mm-hmm. um, or I think I made it the whole year, and then the, my, my sophomore year is when I really started trying to be intentional about finding something else and, uh, you know, made my way to a tiny Episcopal church where I was the youngest person there by many, many years. Um, and my now wife, Chloe, my roommate and I all got confirmed together there, um, which was a wonderful experience. And I guess that was 2015, December. Um, but yeah, I mean, those, those moments of growing up and kind of pushing a little bit, you know, like, like kids do, they, they push on some of the rules or to really test what, what's here and, um, not always receiving a satisfactory answer of, you know, why do we go to church to learn? Okay. Well, what about if I, if I learn mm-hmm. better this way? Yeah. Well, what about if I do this? What about if I do that? And, um, again, you know, people responding with, you know, obviously not, not anger, um, but not necessarily giving a satisfactory answer. And so that kind of pushed me to maybe explore some other some other avenues. What's interesting to me, and this may be helpful for, for parents to hear, especially if they have younger children, is that what was consistent in both of our stories of why we're still not only in the church now, but we're, we're ordained in the church, is um, the witness of parents is important. Yeah. The, cons- the consistency of parents is important. Mm-hmm. Even if the children try to push and, and poke holes and wiggle out. Right, because they will. The constancy of the parents of saying, this is what we do, even though we were you know, twice a month, it was still, this is what we're doing, and, yeah. and, um, and they, were, they were consistent on it. And then, frankly, the older I got, the more we actually went. Yeah. Um, the other thing is friend groups matter. Yeah, they do. I mean, I mean, usually, usually, I mean, they, they, they certainly can hurt and they Mm -hmm. certainly can help Mm -hmm. in doing that. Um, I started dating my junior year, a delightful, delightful young girl who went to the church of God Mm -hmm. and people at St. Timothy's have heard me say this because this is, um, sort of missionary dating yep. is that I went to church three times a week because her parents did not view that as a date, uh, yep. and I did. And so I got to see her on Friday night, <laughs> but also twice on Sunday and on Wednesday night. So I was at her little, the small Church of God, yeah. charismatic, yep. speaking in tongues congregation, Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday Bible study, prayer meeting. Actually, they had preaching at all three. I mean, it was okay. a service yeah. at all three. Uh, and then, um, and so I actually got my first study Bible from her mm-hmm. mother. Um, anyone of a certain age, all we all got the Zondervan NIV study Bible, yeah, the little blue, yep, the yep. blue Mountains. paperback. Yep. So uh, that was mine. Um, but I got that was my first time in a religious context other than the one I, in which I was raised, yeah. and it was incredibly different. Hmm. Um, again. Anyone who knows me now knows that's not my intuition, my right. expression at all. However, I look back and with great affection and admiration of all of those people, because yeah. I do think they were completely and totally sincere, even if now looking back I have disagreements theologically mm-hmm. and other things, they were completely devout people trying to live their lives in the love of the Lord the best way they knew how. Yeah. And their commitment on Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday night, which is the same people, yeah. three times a week, was really impressive. And that, that for me, was a similar 
situation in which I began to sort of explore and ask questions, um, both positive of what I experienced, but also asking questions that were pushing back a little bit. Now, mm -hmm. what about this? Um, and for me, when when that relationship ended and I went back to my home church, it was still those questions were still there. So when I graduated high school, at that point, I think I knew that I was called to the to the altar. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what that looked like or anything, but I started visiting other Methodist churches. And that, to mm -hmm. me, was another um, um, act of adulthood, of taking ownership yeah. of my faith, of I'm taking this seriously. Uh, I'm not abandoning my tradition, but I just want to go and see what others are doing. Mm -hmm. And my parents were... In, I think they weren't thrilled about that because they had to explain, well, where's Steve? Well, Steve's at St. Mark's today yeah. instead of Main Street, whatever. But um, I began to meet other pastors mm -hmm. and have conversations and having other perspectives and all that was, um, was, was very helpful. And then when I went to college, I, um, I, I felt like I wanted to go into ministry, but I didn't know what that looked like. So I went to the Methodist church in that town and met the pastor and said, I'd like to work with youth. Hmm. And as we know, pastors don't have young yeah. college students show up on their doorstep saying, I'd like to work, and I'll work for basically nothing. And so they paid me basically nothing. Yeah. <laughs> they, they paid me $65 a week to be the youth director, and I did it for two years. Had no business doing what I was doing because mm -hmm. um, I had no, again, no no theological formation um, I was just, I just had a desire yeah. and enthusiasm and desire and enthusiasm will take you, you know, pretty far, pretty far, you know, you can do some harm along the way, but mercifully, um, mercifully I was stopped before that happened. But I remember buying, um, the first book I ever bought um, with my own money that had anything to do with the Bible was a Billy Graham book mm. called Hope for the Troubled Heart. Yeah. I wish I still had it. Again, devotional reading, not terribly deep. But it was the only thing I had. Mm -hmm. There was only one Christian bookstore in my town. Um, I'll just go quickly. Sort of what happened to me is Methodism is all I knew, mm -hmm. and I knew I wasn't charismatic. Um, so I s actually served a church, a United Methodist Church, as a student local pastor when I was 20 years old, which is ridiculous. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't recommend it at all. Um, but if you were in pre, if you were in theological or pre-theological training, you could be appointed as yeah. a student pastor in these tiny little Methodist churches. And what's even crazier is you could you, you were given the authority to do all the pastoral work in that congregation, like baptize, yeah, marry, communion, the whole bit. And I couldn't even. I mean, thank God we used grape juice because I couldn't buy the wine yeah. for communion because I was twenty years old living in the parsonage in a house. And the the irony is it was the church my father was baptized in. Mm. And because I went to, um, um, my college was near where he grew up. Mm -hmm. My grandmother was in my church. My uncle was the chair oh. of the finance committee. Again, don't recommend yeah. that, but that's the way it was. And so I served, I served that church while finishing my final two years of undergraduate work. And then I went to seminary at mm -hmm. Emory, um, fully intending on becoming United Methodist minister and having my career. But the more I learned about um, John Wesley, mm -hmm. the more I discovered about the Church of England. Yep. I also began to, and I'll get to the point of, of why I left. I, I was appointed in the Methodist Church. You're, you're moved around. Um, you itinerate, mm -hmm. as they say. And I was appointed to a large church um, on the South Carolina-Georgia border, and I was the associate pastor, about a 2,000, 2,500-member church. And I was doing that full-time and driving to Atlanta, Georgia um, every week. It was brutal, absolutely brutal. brutal. But um, for me, the, the, the piece de resistance was I was doing a wedding for the choir director's son, and it wasn't in the church itself. It was literally down the street, and they asked okay. me to do the wedding. Yeah. And I did the wedding, and I got called into the boss's office the next week when he heard about it. And I think he was partly mad that they didn't ask him. Right. And he told me they were not actually married because I only had authority to do marriages 
in that the building. building and not down the street. And, um, and, and I remember thinking, this is insane. What, what is this theology of ordination that right. we're doing? And then I remember reading the Methodist documents about communion and then how that did not match really the popular piety of the people, mm. where sort of Methodist sacramental theology is, is actually robust. It is. The understanding, the census fidelium of the people, the sense of the faith among the people was, was quite different. And I remember having a desire and, and wanting weekly communion, like John Wesley did, mm -hmm. which is where the name Methodist came from. They were so methodical in mm -hmm. what they did. And I would wear an alb. I wasn't ordained. I didn't wear a stole, but I wore an alb. And when I was the, the sole pastor of that tiny church, I would do the collect of the day from the Book of Common Prayer, oh, just okay. trying to to bring the Methodist Church back to its roots yeah. of being Church of England as a missionary activity in America. It really came to the point that I had a crisis of theology over ordination, mm -hmm. over the sacraments, um, and also I realized I'm going to kill every Methodist church I serve, yeah. because the direction, this is the early 2000s, was going more toward you know contemporary things, and here I am wearing an album, yeah. getting the prayer book, and um, and I knew that if I needed to, to make a move, I needed to be honest and be authentic now, and um, I, there was a local Episcopal church across the river in, in um, Augusta, Georgia, and the first service I ever went to, um, this is this is really bizarre. Before my confirmation in the Episcopal Church, okay. the confirmation liturgy was the second Episcopal service I'd ever been to in my entire <laughs> life. I had a day off, and so I went to um, I went to the church. The bishop was there. The bishop who ordained me, mm -hmm. he came in, and it felt right. There mm -hmm. was this spiritual grandfather coming in, and it just it was completely different. But there was this connection to authority, yeah. and there was this connection to a tradition that was beyond me mm -hmm. that I can't really tinker with, that I receive and I, I take care of and I pass on, but I don't manipulate. Yeah. I'm not supposed to, at least. Right. And all those questions about who gives you the authority and why can we do this and are we making this up seem to be not completely answered. But here was an expression that understood that tension and um, provided a way uh, with the Book of Common Prayer, the historic episcopate, mm -hmm. and, the, and the insistence on our communion with the Sea of Canterbury right. beyond us made an awful lot of sense. He's still so, a bishop when he leaves that church, unlike absolutely. Methodist pastors. Yeah, yeah. And, and, it was, um, and so it was a, an extraordinary leap of faith that we did, uh, that we did that. Um, Sherilyn was, uh, I left in July of 2004. Mm -hmm. She was uh, seven and a half months pregnant, eight months pregnant. So within, within a month and a half, we changed jobs, bought a house, had a baby, uh, and changed traditions. My goodness. And we were so in over our head yeah. that we completely had to live by faith. Yeah. Had no, had literally no idea what would happen in the next six months. I had no guarantee of ordination, no guarantee of any of this mm -hmm. working. But I knew for me, um, my conscience would not allow me to continue. And yeah. I knew I would actually do harm right. if I did not listen to my conscience. Right. I would hurt myself, but I would also hurt um, hurt the churches. And I did flirt with... Orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. I would go to. I, I. I would go to the Eastern Orthodox um, Church for vespers on on Tuesday nights. Love the people. Still know the priest. He's retired now. Um, but I had to be honest, and Sherilyn helped me be honest with this. I'm too Western. Yeah. Uh, in my culture, but also in my theology. Yeah. Um, and so that, while while attractive, and I have the utmost admiration, mm -hmm. it wasn't going to work. Yeah. I was in a non-denominational church my first, you know, year and a few months at college, and um, I remember working at a kind of evangelical-style summer camp for, for kids um, over the summer, and I, you know, was at a point where I knew I wanted to leave this, you know, Baptist or non-denom world and try to find something else, and, you know, I had gone to a Roman Mass, you know, I had conversations with friends who were, who were Orthodox, and then I had a friend who was Episcopalian. And so I decided, you know, this summer, I'm working at this summer camp, I'm just going to do, um, you know, I downloaded like a little Orthodox prayer book on my, I guess it was a Kindle at the time, and I said, I'm just going to do the Orthodox little morning prayer. I'm sure it wasn't 
the whole thing. It was yeah. whatever you know free book I could find that had the the right in it, and I would do that every day. Um, you know, and it would say cross yourself, and I'd never done that before. And so I would, I would. Do you remember the first time you crossed yourself? In yeah, public? it was it was this summer. Was it? Oh, not not in public. Uh, um, this was this was you know I would I would kind of hide from. Were you, were you terrified from to my do it? Yeah, I yeah. mean I, it felt a little awkward. Yeah, I remember um, the same thing. Like I'm I'm really putting myself out there by I, yep, doing this. Yep. Yeah. Um, and um, but it felt right, didn't it? It did. Yeah. And there was there was something about you know I'm saying the same prayers every day this summer. And um, there was something refreshing about that, but also, you know, I was I was reading because it kind of came with like a little history of this, and it said, you know, this prayer was was used back in the third century, and I remember just thinking, gosh, that's that's significant, isn't yeah. it? Um, a lot of people have been praying this prayer, and it doesn't depend on me to make it up each day. Mm-hmm. And I found some some comfort in that, um, and I remember, you know, having conversations because we had uh, Orthodox kids show up one, one week and then a, a Roman Catholic kid show up one week. And I had, you know, co-counselors who, who were, like I was the assistant and I had a senior counselor, you know, telling me we need to make sure they're a Christian. And, uh, you know, I remember thinking, what a weird place to be. Um, of course they're a Christian. They, their history is older than, than ours is. And, you know, I remember saying, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've been doing their prayer book for the, for the past, yep. you know, month. It, it's good and getting these wide eyes and and that was kind of a, the final push I needed. That go ahead and go ahead and seek out something else. I remember going to the Episcopal Church, got confirmed, and um, they had an interim rector at the time. And you know, God bless him, a, a very um, sincere man who came out of retirement to, to just kind of be the rector for this short time because the old one had had passed away. And you know, I remember him uh, saying one Sunday, "I don't wear the chasuble because it makes me too hot." And I was a Baptist and thought, "What's that?" Mm-hmm. I've never seen one before because yeah. he wouldn't wear it. Um, you know, but a, but a good guy. And, you know, he did he did the confirmation class for us. But I remember talking with him about um, a sense of calling and, and kind of relaying my story so far. I said I'd grown up in the Southern Baptist Church, responded to this call to ministry. What do I do now that I'm Episcopalian? Does that mean you know priesthood? You know, I, I've never even thought about that before. But what what does that mean? And um, you know, probably because he was thin and rector and didn't want to deal with any, any of this right now. He said, why don't you pray about it for another couple of years and then revisit it? And I remember walking away thinking, man, okay, fine. Um, got a business major and a religious studies minor and um, kind of still knew, you don't, want to, you don't want to go into business. It was, it was a good major, but... I mean, come on, you're you're Although we had a very successful pledge campaign this we year. Did. We're grateful we for did. your business degree. <laughs> my, both, both my parents are accountants. It's good for everyone yeah, to have that yeah. n- knowledge. But, you know, kind of recognizing, you know, you've, you've always, you know, had a, had a passion for the church and the scriptures, and, and that context has changed so much. But that that sense of calling, you know, stood with me. So um, I went to a Wake Forest Divinity School because they gave me it for free. And I thought, well... I'm not sure what I want to do, so I'm not going to pay for anything yet, and I'm sure not going to make, you know, my uh, fiance at the time, you know, future wife, go into debt for something that I'm not even sure what yeah. what it looks like. So I, I went there, um, had a very interesting experience. Um, that the good of it was that I ended up doing my internship here, and that is really where I was able to give a concrete context for that sense of calling and start praying through and discerning a call to the priesthood, and you know, did the parish discernment committee here. Um, and entered the ordination process, and that was three, four years ago. It's, it, it's been quite a while Is it now. true that we first met when I did a guest lecture at yes. your class talking about Ash Wednesday and the penitential nature the, of it? And, yes, and your the class, banishment of the uh, sinners, And basically. your classmates lost their mind over it after, my, after I left. They did, uh, yeah. yeah um, and I remember, you know, thinking, you know, watching that reenactment video that I don't think is online no, anymore, soft, but yeah. um, thinking, you know, this is what they did for, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of yeah. years, and people were willing to kind of buy into that and say, I'm going to trust that you know, this is going to form me, and I'm not trying to do my own thing. I'm almost submitting to this structure in place, and that was uh, meaningful for me. Um, and I think the, the thing that I had to be taught that was so vital for my you know, um, transition and, and confirmation in the Episcopal Church and, and discernment process and, and all of that, I had to be taught humility. Um, because as a kid, you know, listening to podcasts, uh, 
instead of the the sermon that was going on, you know, started to develop some sense of, you know, oh, come on, I'm way more in this than you are. I'm willing Mm -hmm. to do this and this and this. And I had to have that humility um, to say, submit to the the things that have been happening for hundreds of years and trust that you don't know what's best for you. Um, That was was really big for me. And, And I don't know if there was anybody who told me that or if it was this slow realization that, you know, the, the prayers and the structure of, you know, the, the liturgy and, and all of this stuff, this connection to the church, that has formed genuine saints for, for hundreds and yeah. thousands of years. Who are you to say that that's not going to work now? That's not going to work today. And, and there was that almost humility of saying, it's worked for a lot of people. I'm human just like them. As much as we like to think, you know, I'm special and unique, we, we have all the same spiritual needs. We all want that love of God and connection and, and kind of that humble trust that this is actually going to give me what I need. Um, that was that was big for me. How are we on time? We are at 40 minutes. So, okay. So you know, we'll, we'll start kind of I, I wrapping think, up some Well, of I think things. I want to go to the second part of Jason's question. I think I don't, I'm glad we spent 40 minutes talking about those things because I think that Everyone needs to know their own spiritual autobiography do. and know where they came from and know about these questions and to and to know these things are natural. Also to give a bit of encouragement to parents when their kids are pushing back. Yeah. That's yeah. not always a bad thing. It means they're taking it seriously. They're taking it seriously. And I think that we would say that the response to that is don't don't freak out about that. Mm-hmm. Um, continue being who you are because yeah. that's partly what children are trying to figure out is, does this matter to you? Are Mm -hmm. you going to stay solid in this? Um, And then how we got where we are. And there's tons, tons more that's happened Mm -hmm. that we could talk about forever. But let's go back to what Jason asked about the positive and negative aspects of coming into the Episcopal Mm -hmm. Church. Positive aspects for me um, were, and, and I'll, I'll transition to some of what gave me confidence to join the Episcopal Church rather than some of the other traditions. Um, I don't have the book to hold up because uh, during divinity school, I ended up working at the library. And uh, the Wake Forest Library strangely had a lot of E.L. Maskell's books, um, uh, you know, famous Anglo-Catholic theologian. And I, and I remember looking on the uh, checkout log, and the book hadn't been checked out since 2008. And so I would just you know, check a couple of them out and just renew them every, you know, a couple of months, see, has anybody put this on hold? Of course not. I'm just going to hold it. And I held on to it for two years until I graduated. But one of his books was Corpus Christi. And I remember reading it. Major book for me as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he, he basically just goes through, what do we mean by the church is one? Um, what do we mean by a sacramental theology? I remember reading, you know, just simply him explaining the structure of the Eucharistic prayer and what, why, yeah. what connection does that have? What is the meaning behind it? And I remember being blown away by, you know, him having just simple reasonings and, and explanations of why this matters and why this is important and its connection to the, you know, historic church. And when we say the church is one, what do we what do we actually mean by that? And what do Roman Catholics mean by that? Why do we see it maybe slightly differently? He gave me a confidence to say, this is the historic church. This feels right. This fits with me. Um, and a sense of yeah, steady ground to say I'm walking onto something steady. I'm not just doing this because there's a feeling. Um, he has a great um, phrase where he says, uh, the church as a visible and tangible society living in the historic process needs a visible and tangible organ of its unity. But then he says, um, not a moral or political one. The church is a visible and tangible society, but it's a sacramental one. And the organ of its unity will be a sacramental organ. And then he goes on to talk about the importance of the historic episcopate and bishops, priests, and deacons and why that matters. And I remember thinking, you know, that makes so much sense. The church is visible and tangible. But I remember growing up saying, you know, the real church is the one you can't see. It's, it's you know, now, now I would use the phrase sacramental. There's something we can see, and there's a, a grace that we can't. And, and how do we locate that sign of unity? And, and Maskell would say, you know, it's, it's the bishops. It's, it's the continuation of the apostles' teaching. And I remember, you know, thinking, of, of course, that makes so much sense. But he really gave me that confidence um, and that kind of, you know, early in my, my um, discernment process reading him, that, that positive assurance that you are, you are joining yourself to something real and trustworthy and foundational. Um, 
And then as as time goes on, of course, you know, the some of the gold rubs off a little bit. And, yeah. and you actually see the the moral and political signs of unity that Maskell says don't actually that's not the foundation. The foundation is the sacramental presence. But those moral and political ones, you know, battle every which way. And and we focus on those so much that, you know, you see splits happening and, and you see divisions and, and you see um you know, a big one always is is the sign of that sacramental unity. Bishops doing something crazy, um, getting deposed. You know, saying that the resurrection didn't actually happen, yep. and you know, you kind of have to wrestle with that and say, what am I actually getting myself into? Um, but I always come back to him because I always find it assuring that, you know, he says it's not it's not um, moral or political power that that gives us our confidence. It's it's the sacramental reality of continuing the apostles' teaching and that that laying on of hands um, and this continuation that, that we're doing something connected and real and sacramental and that is what our what our trust is in. But yeah, the downsides have been, you know, every which way, uh, as I'm sure everyone has, you know, you can always critique something about a church. Um, but where does your confidence lie? Is it in something fleeting? Is it in something moral or political? Is it in pride that we think we're better than the church down the street? Um, that's gonna that's gonna rub off quickly. That yeah. that will diminish or disappear um, after a few years. What about for you? Um, positive aspects for me is that the things that I was struggling with, I I have I have great confidence yeah. that it's here. So the the. The crisis I had was, am I actually a minister who's been given authority yeah. to do these things? And I think that, I don't think, well, I do think, I think and believe, and that's important. You can believe without thinking, mm-hmm. and I have, I believe, I've assented to that, yeah. but I also have critically thought it through, yeah. and I think this to be the case, that I'm a validly ordained Catholic priest right. in the Episcopal Church. Right. Um, if I did not think that, I would not be here, and that's yeah. very, very important. Starting um, this second, we've, this talk, second, we've talked about that second. before. If, if I had a if I had a crisis where I doubted that I was actually yeah. a priest that has been given the um, not the power but the authority to yeah. to absolve sins set apart and, for and to a specific that, purpose, I wouldn't. I, I promise you, I wouldn't. Um, Say well, in three months I'll go yeah. join the Roman we would Catholic not have Church. No, I would not do it because that yeah. would be a fraud, right? And I would be giving you false hope, and I wouldn't right. do that. So, as crazy as uh, the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion can be, and as complicated as it is, mm-hmm. I believe that that you know certainly through my apostolic lineage and all of that, that I am who I have. I, I'm, I am who I was told I am, yeah. and I believe that um, completely. And so, all the things that I was searching for and longing for both as a Christian but also as someone who was discerning a call mm-hmm. I, I I think are here the tradition the um, the ceremony the theology all the things that I had the intuition mm-hmm. for even as a as a child yeah. that that felt natural to me that now here um, I can freely explore and experience yeah. All that being the positive, interestingly for me, is also the negative. Is you know at least in my ministry, that has been the cross I've had to bear: yeah. tradition, mm-hmm. ceremony, liturgy, mm-hmm. um, you know, traditional positions, and and those sorts of things. The things that I came here for. Right now that I have them, and the church has them, that's been not always been the easiest to to hold on to or to yeah. or to hold those positions. And be here. Um, again, another positive thing is for me, God willing, the bishops tolerate me and the people will have me. I can be here until I retire. Right. And so that English way of having a parish community mm-hmm. of the of the vicar of the rector being among the people yep. for a long time, and not viewing the church as I, mean, I remember again. This is not a critique of the Methodist system. I mean, it is, but it's not a moral judgment. Just, and I think people in the system who are still in it, my friends, yeah. would agree with this. Is that when I was coming through seminary, we were always talking about and being groomed for what we called a good appointment. Yes. And I remember asking at lunch one day, "Gosh, what is a good appointment?" Now I knew we all meant that to be 
the county seat church with the big salary and the yep. staff and all yep. that. I said, but guys, nice parsonage. I said, we're going to have it for four years yeah. and then we'll be moved. I said, so we're spending our entire ministry of 30, 35 years for a four-year appointment, yep. and we might be miserable once we get there. That's no way to live. Yeah. And what about those poor people that we are now viewing as stepping stones yep. until we get to this quote-unquote good appointment? Right. And that's, that's not right. And here, where we have in our polity this, this tenured relationship, mm-hmm. but there's accountability to both for the, for the priest but also the people right. in this together, we can grow together and we can mm-hmm. discover things and, and we can we can be together for a long time. Yeah. And that, that to me has been very enriching. For someone who grew up in a system where um, your minister was only there an average of four years at most. That's a hard relationship. You've learned that both the pastor understood if things aren't going great, I can just hang on another year or two and I'm out. Mm-hmm. The congregation knew if we can just cool our heels and... Yep. They'll be gone in two or three years. Yeah. We'll be fine. Um, it took me a while, actually, to get over that that um, wanderlust mm-hmm. of saying, "Gosh, what's next?" and yep. that and that ambition. So, um, I had ambition in the Methodist Church because I was taught to have yep. it. I had ambition coming into the Episcopal Church, but that's been purged. Yeah, you know, there is no, there is, there is no, <laughs> there is no more ambition. I mean, sort of, you know. That humility has been forced upon me. Um, I'm grateful for it, though, because now that Benedictine stability, this is where I'm called to be, and I'm going to fight to be here. I'm Mm going to fight for what we have here. It's a long-term approach. It's a long-term approach, which I think is the healthier approach to them. We've got about nine minutes left, Um, and I I think what what might be helpful for people is... And I'll start and give you a chance to think about it as I'm talking, is locating either books or practices outside of you know the Bible and, and the Book of Common Prayer. Although if you want to specifically mention something in the Book of Common Prayer, but specific things that maybe were noteworthy for you that you would almost always recommend to people. Um, you know, I'm sure lots of people ask, you know, what books do you recommend? What, what, what should I do to grow as a Christian? Um, and for me personally... I already mentioned E.L. Maskell's, you know, Corpus Christi book. That is a theologically dense book. But that, if that built the confidence, um, I think this book that I, gosh, I think somebody gave it to me. Um, it is called The Roots of Christian Mysticism by Olivier Clement. It is, he is an Eastern Orthodox um, theologian. And the subtitle is Text from the Patristic Era, Era with Commentary. And basically what he's doing is... Um, Going, you know, topic by topic, but also kind of broad to narrow, and just going through, you know, understanding the mystery. What is the church? It's a place for rebirth, talking about baptism. Um, The interior combat, you know, what does it mean to have um, a a prayerful life? And on every page, he's basically just putting, you know, church fathers' quotes, offering a little bit of commentary, and kind of painting a story or telling painting a large picture from the early church of how... How do they view the world? And so if, if you know, E.L. Maskell gave me the confidence to step into the Anglican tradition, um, this book really gave me a whole new worldview that was more in line with the early church. You know, how, how do I see myself? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to receive the Eucharist and have a reverence for God? What does it mean to pray? Um, I, I don't think this is a, a controversial statement. Um, I did not really know how to pray until I found like the Book of Common Prayer mm-hmm. and this structured prayer routine. I didn't understand what it meant to to be shaped by prayer, to commune with God, um, until I found this, you know, structured, ritualized prayer, because it was me submitting to something. Um, growing up, you know, prayer was, was freehand. It was when I thought about it, what came to mind when I wanted to talk about this, and submitting to a rule of prayer um, that has been around for thousands of years was the first time I learned what it means to, you know, be shaped by prayer, to be formed by prayer. I mean, you know, when I think about some of my most powerful prayer moments, um, 90% of them have come since I've been in the Episcopal Church. Um, but these two books, E.L. Maskell's Corpus Christi and Levere Clint's Roots of Christian Mysticism, I think this book outside of the Bible and study Bibles and the Book of Common Prayer is still the book I 
pick up and read from time to time the most because it, it really fundamentally reshaped my worldview um, and not with anything new, but with, with a bunch of old things. Um, you know, I remember reading some of these, some of these um, early church fathers and how they approached the scriptures and thinking, you know, goodness, they have much more reverence for it than I do. They, they actually think this stuff is alive and shaping their lives every single day. I want that. Yeah. Um, you know, I grew up with the reverence of the scriptures. I grew up memorizing it. And I was still miles behind some of these people. Um, and that really helped kind of categorize my reverence for the scripture. Where does that find its proper place? Well, it finds it in the church. It finds it in, in the sacraments and all of that. And that kind of helped me holistically change my, my Christian life, uh, my prayer life, my you know, approach to church, my opinions about you know, all sorts of things. Um, those two books were, were immensely impactful for me. Mine, um, I don't have one seminal book, but Callistus Ware, Orthodox yep. Bishop, recently died, wrote two books, uh, The Orthodox Way and The Orthodox Church. Yeah. The Orthodox Way, I read and highlighted, and it was eye-opening, mm -hmm. and it helped me come into the Episcopal Church, ironically, because he was writing about the Orthodox Church. But it was a, it was a, um, it was a sort of a, it wasn't systematic theology, but it was a, it was a overall approach yeah. of theology that was beautiful. It was profound, but presented clearly, mm -hmm. and no wishy-washy, no fudge, but with a lot of pastoral. Um, grace behind it. And so I recommend anything by Callistus Ware. For me, in terms of um, the Episcopal Church and my priesthood, people always, well, not always, but people frequently ask, especially people discerning a call, what mm -hmm. should I read? Or even young clergy, they'll ask, what should I read? I, I like to read the works of people I admire who've done it. Hmm. So I love reading sermons and books yeah. and diaries of parish priests. Yeah. I love reading, you know, one of my favorite uh, World War II priests in the Church of England is Father Wilson in the Hagerston Parish. He wrote these wonderful catechisms and these wonderful stories, but here was a man in the, in the slums who was living it, and so it wasn't an ivory tower, mm -hmm. you know, no dissertation. You know, it was, yeah. he was just trying to communicate the faith to people who you know, weren't necessarily primed to hear it. And mm -hmm. so I think that's that's important. I will also say I was formed really by tons of devotional books that I found, mm -hmm. secondhand books, books of prayers, books of yeah. devotions that gave that structure to, to the life of prayer. And to what you said, there's nothing wrong with extemporaneous prayer, of right. course. Right. The problem Still I, do it. The problem, I think, with extemporaneous prayer, or a problem, not the problem, is that we hear people who, who are very polished when they do it, and we assume that's that has to be how we are to pray. Right. And also extemporaneous prayer can be manipulative. It can be yep. a mini homily and not an authentic prayer. And so I had someone in the office not too long ago who was saying, I don't know how to, to pray when I pray. I said, yeah. well, prayer is not a three-point paper. Right. You know, it's not it's not an organized document. It's, you know, it's it's sighing, it's it's weeping, it's moaning, it's the Holy Spirit. It's honesty. Yeah, it's in the, the one thing we have to have in prayer is honesty. Yeah. Because if we're just honest in prayer, who do we think we're kidding yeah. if we're praying Ourselves. to God, if God knows us before we even know what we're going to say? But finally, I remember when I was in college and had all this confusion and internal spiritual chaos of, you know, what am I doing? Where am I going? I would go on my lunch break to Trinity Episcopal Church, beautiful French Gothic 19th century church in Abbeville, South Carolina. And the church was open. Mm -hmm. That was an important witness. There was no one there. And I would go and sit and just thumb through the Book of Common Prayer. Hmm. And that was when I was a youth director. Yeah. And I had never seen it before. But to me, it felt like this like lost book of spells or, yeah. or, this, or this manual for life yeah. that if you just follow this, it will, it will take you to where you want to go. And I still believe that. Yeah. I still follow yeah. that. Is The prayer book is the guide to the Christian life. It is. And um, every Episcopalian should view it that way. Yeah. And and that book should be your companion and your friend and your challenge um, and your comfort. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to close with a quote from the preface to this book, but I think you know it will do a good job of just kind of summing up We've both had long journeys here. Um, we've had ups and downs. Still having a and, long journey. Yeah, still having a long journey. 
um, you know, just beginning, looking, looking forward to two months from now, um, ordination to the priesthood, and, and you've been in this for a long time, but that commitment and that trust that Jesus Christ has led us where he wants us to be um, still carries, I think, both of us to this day. Um, but I'm going to close with this quote from um, Olivier Clement, and then we can close in prayer. But it kind of sums up my, my journey here, um, and I think, you know, I would imagine it would do a similar thing for you. He says this, Intellectual research may be exciting, but it will not lead us to the secret of life. Nor will the truth be found through consumerism, though of course we must eat. Nor will it be found through action, although action is inevitable if we are to restrain our tendency to exploit one another. In other words, our roots are in fact religious and artistic, and therefore non-rational, or perhaps supra-rational. As soon as our material needs are satisfied, deeper needs assert themselves. It is now twenty centuries since Jesus declared that man does not live by bread alone. And we know today that not even the most effective psychoanalytical treatment can cure us of a deep sense of disquiet within us. There is not a superhuman or revolutionary who is not beset by unappeased desires. The fathers of the Christian church, for whom prayer was as natural as breathing, discovered this truth before we did, saying, Birds fly, fishes swim, and man prays. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Ghost be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen.